Welcome to Sunday Sermons from Trinity UMC in Lincoln, a podcast to help on the faith journey. Now on to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Slater. All right, this is a little funny, but I have to start out with a fortune cookie this morning. I love Chinese food, American Chinese food. Where is it? It's in my pocket. It's been in my pocket since yesterday. I swear this is a, this is a coincidence. I got this yesterday. The fortune says, you do not have to worry about your future. Now, that was one of our scriptures, wasn't it? Or at least uh, Jesus' version of it. You do not have to worry about your future. I'll show the people on the camera here. I don't know, you probably can't read it. But, uh, and and it's, it's funny because whoever wrote this fortune was, well, probably just looking for another fortune, another idea to put on, right? But, and there's a sense in which we have to worry about our future. There's a sense in which we should worry about our future, but maybe concern is a better idea. You know, we have to think about what our life will be like in our retirement, and so we put money into a 401k. We buy insurance, right? These are all a a type of worry about our future, but it's more so a healthy and wise concern. But there's also a sense that with God, we know we never need worry because God always wins in the end. Well, that's one way to say it. I don't know if win is quite the right word. But we always know that God's good future is ahead of us. So in the broadest sense of it, we never need worry. And that's really what today's service is about in the end. Uh, We're continuing the series on hope. Now, I did my doctoral research on hope, and a lot of that is seeping in. You've heard a lot of it in other places, too, uh, here and there. This one, though, this series uh, comes from Church of the Resurrection and Adam Hamilton, to whom I am grateful. Uh, But it's more of a biblical view of it. Uh, and by biblical view, I mean we're looking at different sections of the Bible and asking how God's hope came in each of those times. You know, Scripture isn't a, the type of book where you can take out a phrase here and there. Uh, they don't always work out of context. They, they aren't always faithful out of context. It's a story, though. And especially when you look at the larger story, you can see how God related to God's people. Uh, and so the first week we looked at the Psalms and how God's hope comes through the Psalms. The second week we looked at the prophets and today we turn to the Gospels. Now, hope is a conviction that the future will be better than the present. That's the definition we've been using. It's a conviction. Hope is not the same thing as optimism. Optimism is good, but hope is something else. It's not, nor is it the same as a wish. So we might say, what do you hope to get for your birthday? But that's not the kind of hope we mean, because that, that's just a wish, right? What do you want? No, hope is a conviction, a belief, a deep-down certainty that the future is going to be better than the present. And it happens in small ways, like I hope to get lunch, right? Because we have no doubt we'll be able to, at least most of us, at most times in our lives. But also a hope that goes deeper than that for the future because of God. Now, that's hope as a noun, but hope can also be a verb. Hope can also be something that we do. And in that case, it's choosing to act knowing that the future will be better. Now, if you choose to act, if you have a conviction in your heart that the future is going to be better than the present, then you act like it. The actions that you choose have that in mind. But what's the opposite? The opposite is acting as if the future will not be better. If you let your actions be ruled by a belief that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, 
you're not going to be a very happy person. <laughs> and the actions you take are probably are going to be selfish ones. They aren't going to be as good as they could be. But if you know God's future is in store, then you live it with your actions too. And it becomes contagious. It also starts spreading it to those around you. Now, the first week of the series with the Psalms, I shared with you a cycle, and it keeps coming back up through all of this hope stuff. So I'll, I'll share it with you again, especially if you missed it. And that is the idea that there are cycles in life. There are seasons of life where we are in orientation. That's the upper right side there, where everything seems good. We know what we're doing. Our feet are on solid ground. Life is good. Everything is going smoothly. It's oriented, right? But then come seasons of disorientation. Maybe we get a diagnosis or a sickness or an uncertainty of something. Maybe, we, maybe you lose your job or lose someone that you love. And that death in your life uh, brings a new era of disorientation. These are difficult times to be sure. But there's always a time eventually, eventually, of reorientation. Now, it's easiest to find hope, I think, in disorientation because that's when we need it most. But it's easiest to be thankful in times of reorientation because we still remember what the bottom was like and we're grateful to God and all the, the people through whom God helped us. And then, of course, the cycle starts all over again as we become comfortable in a season of orientation. Now, the Psalms do all three of these. The prophets are mostly in disorientation, the disorientation, but a little bit on the borders between them. In the Gospels, the stories of Jesus... Jesus comes to take people, this is the verb here, right, to take people who are disoriented and actively work to reorient them. Now, there's another take on this cycle uh, that's a, a little bit distinct from Richard Rohr. I know that our Seekers class has read books by him. Many of you use his devotional emails. I recommend them if you're looking for something. But his take on it is this. Sometimes our we are ordered in our, the, in our life and in the way we live. Sometimes we are disordered and sometimes we are reordered. And we'll say more about this, but what Jesus does is he takes people whose lives are disordered and he reorders them. Now, sometimes our lives become disordered because of, well, sometimes I shy away to the word because of the baggage it carries, but sin right? Sometimes our lives are disordered because we have acted wrongly, because we've lost track of our values and our life becomes disordered. We let things into our lives that shouldn't be there. Or perhaps more subtly, we allow things that are supposed to be in one place in our lives to weasel their way into another. So how are things supposed to be? What does an ordered life look like? Well, you'll have to read all the Gospels for some help there. But one way to say it is the time that Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of all the commandments? And his answer, he actually gives two. His answer is, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, he didn't make this up. This comes from Deuteronomy. This is something that the wisdom of faithful people for generations back to the very beginning realized was true, that the greatest thing is to love God, and the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says that on this, everything else hangs. Everything else in the Bible comes down to this. Now, I want to give you an example. As I'm sure you can tell, 
I raided our child care <laughs> and I took a blocks. And in fact, I went to great lengths to find just the ones I like. And they all kind of got this yellow orange scheme going on and I've got piglet there too. So, you know, <laughs> so here's, here's how it's supposed to work. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. And when you do this, it's solid. Like, look, I can push this to where it tips, right? I can give this a good knock and it doesn't fall off. Like even the ones on the top don't fall off. This is a solid. This is the way it's supposed to be ordered. But let's go to the most extreme here. What happens if we put ourselves first? We put ourselves first and then maybe we spend some time thinking about others. We do some nice things. We're not totally selfish, but we put others and then God is an afterthought. What happens? Now, I want to say, I picked just the right blocks. I spent time in my office trying to get it to stay up. Like, I'm thinking, if I balance this just right, can I make it work? I couldn't do it. I couldn't get it to stay up. This is a perfect example because it won't stay. If we put ourselves first, it doesn't stand. We are disordered. Now, let's get to a place that's a little more subtle, a place that's a little more sneaky. One thing I hear sometimes is, my family is first. Now that's good and it comes from a good place. But what happens if we put our family first? Okay, we put our family first and let's say, uh, let's say we put our family first and then take care of ourselves and then God. Tell me, does this stand? Well, it, it, it does a little. Like this one, I probably could get to stay that way if I tried hard enough. At least I could get it to stay that way until wind blew. <laughs> Or, or maybe it's this, you put your family first and then God and then yourself. Well, okay, that, that actually will stand a little bit. But once again, it doesn't take very much before it topples. The only way it stands is if God is the foundation. And then that provides a more stable foundation for our family. We're actually loving our family more when God is the foundation and ourselves as well not to be neglected. That is how life is supposed to be ordered. What Jesus does is he helps us stack our blocks. That's who Jesus is. He helps us stack our blocks. He helps us to see how much better life is when we order it rightly. And he seeks out the people who are most disordered. Now, sometimes it's not their own doing. It's not their own sin, so to speak. Sometimes it's people whose lives are disordered because society has forced it on them. These are the justice issues, right? But other times it's people who have done it, who, who've done it to themselves by their choices. And Jesus took some heat for it. You know, uh, Alexis uh, read one of the scriptures for us earlier. Uh, the, uh, it was the, the first one, I think it was, from Matthew 9. And it's uh, Matthew uh, when he was, uh, when Jesus called him to be one of the disciples. Listen to it again. As, oh, you should know, by the way, that tax collectors were generally considered to be liars and cheaters in those days. There's more that could be said about that, and I'm sure there are nuances, but most tax collectors didn't just collect taxes, they skimmed more off the top, and they made poor people poor while working with the enemies. So, again, keep that in mind. 
As Jesus continued on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes. And he said to him, follow me. And Matthew got up and followed him. As Jesus sat down to eat in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners joined Jesus and his disciples at the table. But when the Pharisees saw this, he said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, are you ready for this? When Jesus heard it, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. To put it in terms of blocks, I didn't come to help the people whose blocks are already right. I came to the people who are disordered to help them to be ordered again. Now, that's great for obvious sinners, you know, people who have done bad things. And you know what? There are some among us. There are some among us who could tell stories of how God had redeemed them from big things. But what about those of us who try to live a pretty good life? You know, I heard a metaphor recently that I liked. Uh, I, I've heard it before. Wouldn't it be great? You know, the, you know the scanners at the airport, the x-ray scanners that make sure you don't have a weapon? Wouldn't it be great if we could have something like that in church, where every time you walked into church, you could see what was in your heart. You could see how your blocks were stacked. Now, you want to kill attendance? There's a good way to do it. <laughs> I suspect, though, that if we did that, you would probably see one or two whose blocks were way out of order. You would probably see one or two. But for most of us, the blocks would be pretty good, but not perfect but not perfect. Everybody who walks in is disordered at least a little. And you know, I think it comes out sometimes when we see Jesus, some of Jesus' sayings that almost don't make sense. Those were our other scripture readings for today. Like for instance, Matthew 6, 25 and 27. Where is it here? Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life. That was the fortune cookie, right? Therefore, I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink, or about your body, what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothes? Who among you by worrying can add a single moment to your life? You know, I've shared with you before that my COVID journey starting last March uh, was one of anxiety. And I don't just mean being nervous a lot. I mean diagnosed clinical anxiety. Uh, and if I'm honest, it had been growing in me for several years, though I hadn't named that fact. Only looking back do I see it. It was the pandemic that pushed me to need to be treated for it. And if I had come across these verses uh, during a, when I was at the peak of it, when I was at the peak in need of treatment, I, <laughs> well, to be honest, I probably wouldn't have come across them because I was too in my own head and I was too worried. But if I had, I don't know if I would have laughed or if I would have been in disbelief or what. I most certainly wouldn't have understand, understood when I was in, those st in that state why Jesus said not to worry. I mean, come on, Jesus, there's a pandemic starting in the world. <laughs> we didn't know what was happening. Talk about being disoriented. What is this nonsense about don't worry? We must worry. We have to worry. Now, part of my own anxiety is biological, and I'm grateful for the medicines the doctor ga doctors gave me to help treat that. Uh, it's doing well. But if I'm honest, I had some disorder in my blocks, too. If I'm honest, I was also relying too much on myself 
and I was losing sight in those busy days of God's bigger picture and God's promise that good would come from all things. I was too reliant on self. Now, I'm still working on it. I'm not saying I'm perfect, but it's an example of how that verse wouldn't have made sense to me then. (laughs) But there's another saying of Jesus that, to be totally honest, I still don't get in my heart. It's a a couple chapters later. It's Matthew 11. Interesting, these all come from Matthew. Matthew, the tax collector, must have been one who knew. Uh, And uh, that verse is this. Come to me. All you who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy to bear, and my burden is light. Okay, this is rhetorical. I'm not actually asking for a show of hands, so, but, but I ask the question, how many of you think God's burden is light? <laughs> that one gets nervous laughter out of me, right? Life seems hard. What do you mean, Jesus? My yoke is easy to bear and my burden is light. Have any of you ever pushed a dolly loaded with just a few too many boxes or furniture? You know, if you have a dolly that's loaded up with things, you have to balance it just right on the wheels. Because if it's not, you have to hold it all with your hands, right? If the dolly isn't balanced perfectly on its wheels, you lose the weight. You lose the weight and you end up having to support it with your own body and your muscles and you tire so quickly. But the beauty of a dolly is if you balance it just right on the wheels, not only do you not have to support the weight with your hands and your arms and your back, but it rolls more easily too. You know, if you get in a situation where the dolly, if you have something tall like a couch on it or something, and you have to go through a door and you have to like tip it out of balance to get through the door, it's hard, isn't it? It also doesn't want to roll forward nearly as well. But when it's ordered properly, when the weight, when the load is stacked just right, the dolly makes the burden light and easy to bear, doesn't it? When it's ordered right, the burden is easy to bear. I get it here. I'm still working on getting that one here. We all need help with this. We all need reminders. You know, one thing we're doing in this series is uh, a free uh, wallpapers for your phone or your tablet or your computer, something that you see often through the week, and I know many of you have been using those. Let me show you this week's. It's this scripture. It says at the top, When your life feels disordered, remember Jesus' invitation. Come to me, all that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. I hope you'll use that wallpaper this week, and when you see it, I hope you'll take a moment of a deep breath and remember. Well, when you search the Psalms in the Bible for the word hope, it comes up many times. When you search the prophets for the word hope, it comes up even more times. Can anybody guess how many times the word hope appears in the Gospels? Desa doesn't count because she heard it first service. (laughs) Do you know how many times the word hope appears in the Gospels? One. 
Now, isn't that surprising? Depending on your translation, you might get two or three, but they're not really talking about the same thing. No, so that's strange. The Gospels are so full of hope, but it rarely uses the word. You see, Jesus doesn't talk about hope. He lives it. It's his actions. It's what he does that is hope, that gives hope to us, that shares it. It's not hope as a noun. It's, well, it's not even hope as a verb. It's just Jesus doing it. Jesus knows that God has a better future in store. He knows that better days are ahead, like a child who spilled milk and can't imagine the milk not being spilled. Jesus is like the mother who comes in and said, it's okay, we have a towel. There's a better future in store, even though the child can't see it. But Jesus, you see, he knows it. He knows it, and so everything that he does, every action that he takes, every bit of help that he gives, every bit of reordering that he engages in comes from a place of knowing that God is making all things new. And that's the hope of the Gospels. Jesus doesn't give lip service, hope in words. He actively helps us to reorder our lives. But there's another step to it, too, in that he doesn't stop there. He says, I want you to be part of this. You see, of all my research that I've done on hope, my doctoral program I mentioned, the most important thing is to know that hope is contagious. Just as Jesus' actions fill us with hope, so he calls on us to be the hope for someone else, to do something for the world, to take our actions, to choose what we do, knowing that the future will be better. This is a small example, but it's one that many of us in this church share. You know, I've seen a lot of homeless and impoverished people that have poor shoes. Now, have any of you ever worked a job on your feet and done it with poor shoes? It's hard. It's really hard. And in fact, when your shoes don't fit right or when your shoes are old and the arch support broken down, it doesn't just hurt your feet. It hurts your whole body. <laughs> and many people who are homeless or impoverished have terrible shoes, and it makes their lives even more miserable. We had a shoe drive, right? It was our whole community, but our church participated in it. We filled Amy's, poor Amy's office was filled with shoes, and I even made a joke from the pulpit about maybe we need to get some of that spray they have at bowling alleys, right? That's a small thing, but every pair of shoes that, that, that you donated, that we donated, made someone see that there's something better in store. We were the hope. We shared the hope that we have. Now, that's a tiny example. But do you see the importance of living it as a verb, of acting as if, uh, acting and knowing that God has a better future in store? It's part of how that, that hope is contagious. Now, when you live your life with God as the foundation, when you live it, not just lip service, it gives those around you, your family and those in your community, a solid foundation too. And it gives you something to stand on that makes your hope, well, maybe even the greatest of all. Jesus has shown that the future will always be brighter than the present, taken as a whole. Even when dark days come and we have trouble seeing it, Jesus is there helping us to order our lives and the parts that are wrong uh, chemically through medicine and the parts of us where society forces it upon, Jesus is always there helping us to reorder and showing us that part of that hope is that we get to be part of it for someone else too. That's the hope of the Gospels. Would you pray with me? 
Oh God, we give you thanks for Jesus. We give you thanks for his example, for his actions. We give you thanks for the ways that he shows us how to order our lives. Lord, help us to live it in everything that we do. Help us to choose our actions based on knowing you. And may we be so filled with your hope that it cannot help but spill over to those around us. We pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this week's Sunday Sermon. For more information on growth groups or how to more fully embrace the life of faith, visit us at www.trinitylincoln.org.